Good morning, glory of Christ. If you have a Bible with you, will you please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 12 with you, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into the message for the day. So again, I want to read with you 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here's what Peter writes. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word of God as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of his visitation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this living word, and we pray that you would apply this living word now to your church. We pray that our hearts would be open, that our hearts would be soft before you, that we would be like the fertile soil that is eager to receive the seed and that sprouts and grows and produces 30 and 60 and 100 fold fruit because of the word of God. Oh, Father, give us minds to understand and hearts to care, hearts to value and desire the things that you have to say to us today and give us wills that will walk in your way by your power and by your presence. And for how you will work in us this morning, Lord, for how you will build your church together this morning, we give you our thanks and praise in the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty and merciful cornerstone of the church. Amen. From the founding of our church, it has been our practice to devote the Sunday after Easter to the subject of missions. Sometimes we talk about local missions, other times we'll talk about global missions. But we always want to talk about mission after Easter because there is an inseparable link between the resurrection of the Lord and the mission of the church. And we want to highlight that link year by year. It is the resurrected Christ who stood on that mountain in Galilee and commanded his disciples to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, which if you think about it, it's just a kind of an insane command, right? Just, just this small group of ragtag people go into the entire world and make disciples of all nations. But he told them to do that on the basis of his authority and with the promise of his presence. 
And so again, there is this inescapable, inseparable link between the resurrection of Jesus and the mission of the church. And so year by year, it is our desire to highlight this link and, to, and just to keep pointing this out to us. We go into the world on the mission that God has given to us on the basis of the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now this year, there's a little bit of a twist because a few months ago, Pastor Kevin and I decided that year by year, we're gonna start inserting three to four week blocks of preaching into the main series that we're giving on any particular year. So right now we're in the book of Revelation, but it really could have been any book. But our, our heart is to just stop every once in a while to, to give us all a little bit of time to reflect on what we've been learning in that main series but also to give us as pastors a little bit of time to, to speak into other issues in the life of the church or in the life of the broader world. And so rather than just bringing one message on the issue of local missions this year, we want to bring three messages on that. Last week, Pastor Kevin began this mini-series with what I thought was a very good message on mercy ministry and uh, from the story of the Good Samaritan. And what I thought was the most helpful and, and, and powerful thing that he pointed out in that message is that Christian mercy ministry begins and ends at the cross. That is an absolutely crucial idea. What distinguishes Christian acts of love from general acts of kindness in the world is that Christian acts of mercy are the overflow of the grace of God that's at work in our lives. They're actually a demonstration, a, a revelation of Jesus in the world, if you will. Mercy ministry, from a Christian point of view, begins at the cross because it begins with our own inner transformation. It begins with our own receipt of mercy. And then as the mercy of God works in our heart, it changes us so that we begin to care about people that we would not otherwise care about. We begin to care about people we don't even know. We begin to care about people who are, are not deemed worthy by the world, like the unborn, like the prisoners like those who are so poor that they don't have food and clothing. We, we are drawn, Christian people, we, we are drawn to people like these because Christ is at work in us. I'm absolutely not saying that we're the only ones doing kind things in the world, and I'm absolutely not saying that we're any better than anybody else. What I'm saying is that what distinguishes our acts of mercy from other acts of mercy is that we're being compelled by the love of Christ to love others for the glory of Christ. We're not out to get glory for ourselves. The vast majority of Christian acts of mercy are not even known to others in the world. We're not out on a PR campaign. We're being motivated by Christ to demonstrate the love of Christ in the world. That's what makes our love unique. And this is what it means to say that it begins and ends at the cross. It flows from our experience of Christ. And, and at some point, we're compelled to say to the, somebody, we're showing you this love because of what Jesus is doing in our heart. You can know this love as well. It begins, it ends at the cross. Beloved, the command to love God and to love one another is impossible outside of Christ. And so this is why Pastor Kevin's very excellent point is right on the mark. Now this week, I want to take up the topic of evangelism. And essentially, I want to make the exact same point that he made. Namely, evangelism also begins and ends at the cross. You see, it is our experience of grace that transforms us into heralds of grace. It is our adoption into the family of God that compels us from the inside out to go into the world and invite other people into this family. Or if I could use Peter's language, 
It is our own experience and delight in the excellencies of God that motivates us to go into the world and uh, proclaim those excellencies to other people that they might be saved. Evangelism begins at the cross because it begins with our own salvation. It begins with our own transformation. And as God gives us his heart for unbelievers, we go out and preach the gospel. We, we press through our fear and we tell them the truth no matter what the cost and consequence so that others might be saved and so that we might come more fully in the, into the joy of, of cooperating with, participating with the God who seeks and saves the lost. Evangelism is about putting our arms around unbelievers and leading them to the source of life, leading them to the cross. And so, like Mercy Ministry, evangelism begins at the cross, it ends at the cross. It is founded on the resurrection of Christ that gives us authority and power to do the things that Jesus Christ has called us to do. And this is in large part what we're trying to demonstrate in this series. So today... I want to summarize for you, first of all, the contents of First Peter chapter 1, because it's very crucial to understanding chapter 2. And then we'll look at First Peter 2, 1 to 12 for a little bit. And then at the end of the message, I simply want to commend a couple resources to you and then tell you a, a quick story about what it looks like to proclaim the excellencies of God in the world. That phrase sounds kind of grandiose, but it's actually really simple, and I hope to help you see that. So with regard to chapter 1, We saw on Easter Sunday that because of God's great mercy, the Father has caused each one of his people to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God the Father has caused us to come into an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, and it is being kept in heaven for us by God himself. And this inheritance is certain, it inspires in us a living hope because primarily it is tied to the living God through Jesus Christ and also because the living God is the one who is guarding that inheritance. That's what Peter teaches us. It is God himself who is watching over the things that he has promised to us so that unless a person can oppose God himself, they can never spoil or steal what he has promised to his people. And I think it's pretty obvious that no one can oppose God and therefore no one can take our inheritance uh, from us. This is why our hope is a living hope, beloved, because the living God promised it to us and the living God, God is guarding it for us. That's why our hope is a living hope that cannot be taken away. Since we who believe in Jesus Christ by the grace of God possess a hope like this, Peter then counsels us as our older brother in Christ to prepare our minds for action in the world. Be ready, beloved. Be set for action in the world. Don't be lazy, fleshly Christians. Be prepared for action. He tells us to be sober-minded, to be clear in our thinking about all sorts of things. He tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed to us when the glory of Christ is to be revealed. He, in other words, is counseling us not to set our hope in this world. It's all fading away anyways, right? So why would we tie our hope to things that are fading away when we already have a hope that is anchored in him who will never fade away? Set your hope on grace, not on the things of this world. Peter counsels us to uh, passionately pursue lives of holiness. In other words, 
he counsels us to live lives that are set apart for God, and that's what holiness is really about. To be holy is to be devoted to Jesus by the power and grace of Jesus. It's not something we do for him, it's something that he works in us. To be holy is to be obedient to Jesus because we love him and we're growing in trust for him and we we more and more value the things that he has to say and the purposes that he has declared in this world. To be holy then is also to use Peter's words from chapter 1 verse 14, to reject the passions of our former ignorance, the desires of the flesh that never ultimately satisfied us but only really enslaved us and trapped us. To be holy is just to let go of false hopes and come fully into the living hope of God in Christ. To be holy is to embrace the joy and privilege of being like our heavenly father, of being holy as he is holy, of letting him teach us how to think in the way he thinks and how to feel in the way he feels and how to act in the way that he acts. To be holy is to walk in the fear of the Lord, knowing that he has redeemed us out of this world with the precious blood of Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 19. He has not redeemed us out of the world with perishable things that fade away. He's redeemed us for himself with the most infinitely valuable thing in heaven or on earth, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we learn by his grace to walk in the fear of the Lord. That's holiness. To be holy is to love one another with the love of Jesus because he is transforming us and teaching us how to love what he loves. And beloved, other than God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that Jesus Christ loves more than his bride. And as we come to know him, as we come more fully into his grace and mercy and his vision for our lives, as we are transformed by his loving power, we learn to love what he loves. We learn to love the church. We learn to love one another with a profound love. And really what a, what a mercy ministry and evangelism and church planning and global missions becomes is just the overflow of that love from God to us, from us to each other, and then from us, his people, into the world. That's really what it's about. It's simply a, 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 a cascading waterfall of grace and mercy and love that begins and ends at the cross. Beloved, to be holy is to love God and one another. The call to holiness in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 15 could not be stronger, but it's very crucial for us to understand that from a biblical point of view, holiness begins and ends at the cross as well. Holiness is not a work that we do for God. Holiness is a work that God does inside of us. As I said earlier, Devoting ourselves to the love of God and to the love of one another and even to the love of the world and to the love of our enemies is actually impossible in all of its parts if we're left to ourselves. If we were left to ourselves, we would never do those things perfectly. We would never do them well. We would never do them for long. We would forsake that way quite quickly, actually. It requires the power and grace of God at work in our lives to teach us how to love him first and to to put him first and love him most, how to love his people as he loves them, how to love this world in the way that he would have us love the people in the world, and how to love even our enemies with his great grace and with his great mercy. This requires the cross, beloved. Again, holiness is not something that we do for God. It's something that God works in us. You see, the grace of God, first of all, is what 
washes away our sins and frees us from the consequences of all the things that we have done. This is forgiving, transforming grace. But the grace of God in Christ also empowers us to desire the things of God and to do the will of God in the world. In other words, it is the grace of God that empowers us to walk in holiness. It's not something we do for him. It's something that he works in us. And as he works this holiness in us, we become prepared for the things he has for us in this world. As he works this holiness in us, we come deeper and deeper and deeper into the very joy of God in God. I have in mind here John chapter 17, where it talks about the joy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in one another, and how it talks about the fact that when we become one with Christ by faith, we come deep into that joy. That's what holiness is about, beloved. It's learning to walk in the ways of God, by the power of God, so that we come more fully into the joy of God. That's holiness. With this vision of holiness and happiness in mind, then Peter, Peter then counsels us in the beginning of chapter 2 as our older brother in Christ to put away the things of the flesh, things like malice, the kind of bitterness that would plot against people. Things like deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He's calling us to put away the things of the flesh that divide us from other people, that exalt us over other people, and that, that essentially diminish the glory of God in the world. Just walk away from these things. What will they gain you anyway? He exhorts us instead to become like newborn babies. Just think about that. He's now talking to fully grown Christians. He's not necessarily talking to just brand new believers. There is a sense in which we shouldn't be babies our whole life, but we need to grow up. But here, our older brother in Christ, the Apostle Peter, is telling us that there is also a sense where we should absolutely maintain that disposition of newborn babies in the sense that we should crave the pure spiritual milk of Christ that causes us to grow up into the salvation that he has won for us. God wants to put inside of our hearts the same instinctual craving for him that a baby has for its mother's milk. A baby will cry day and night. Some of you know this a lot better than I do. A baby will cry day and night for its mother's milk and it will not stop crying until it's satisfied. And that's the kind of instinct that God wants to put inside of us. He wants us to have the instinct to actually crave him. Do you crave God? Do you desire God so passionately that you would cry out day and night for him? Do you long for him like that? Well, that's the kind of work he's trying to work inside of you, where you would desire him with the same strength that he desires you. That's a lifelong work, but beloved, that is the work of God inside of us. For those of us who have tasted that the Lord is good, he now wants us to crave the Lord who is good all the days of our lives. That's what he's doing inside of us. And beloved, that's holiness. It is the pure desire for the pure spiritual milk of God. That's what holiness is about. As God implants this instinctual desire in us, he also then helps us see little by little, day by day, month by month, year by year, that the vision he has for our lives is actually much bigger than ourselves. The vision he has for our lives is much bigger than any local church, even than Glory of Christ Fellowship or the TCT Network or whatever else we belong to. 
The vision that God has for our lives is bigger than any grouping of churches or any national church or even really the the worldwide church at any snapshot of history. You see, God, his vision for his people is to build us into an eternal spiritual house along with everyone who has ever believed in him from the dawn of creation to the second coming of Christ so that we will be built up into a most glorious house for Christ, built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself. God wants to build us up as living stones in the house of God upon the living cornerstone of Jesus Christ. God wants to fashion us together and unite us with Jesus Christ so that we become one with each other and primarily one in him. Beloved, this is This is the vision that God has for our lives. This is the the beauty of what God has designed for our future. And as we're built up into this spiritual house, you know what God envisions us to be? He envisions us to be a holy priesthood. And his calling upon us in the world is that we would offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to him. Now, many of you don't feel like ministers, but if you know Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you are. Many of you don't feel like priests, but if you believe in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you are. In our culture, we've been pretty highly trained that the pastor, the minister, the priest is the one who goes off to school and prepares themselves and then gives their lives in the service of God and of the church. And of course, we do believe that there's a place for that. I wouldn't be here, Pastor Kevin wouldn't be here if there wasn't a place for that. But all of our preparation And our dedication to serving God and the church doesn't mean that we're any more priestly than any of you who believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're any more ministers of the gospel than any of you you are before Jesus. It does not mean that we have a higher place in the kingdom of God than any of you. Beloved, we together are a holy priesthood in the world designed and called to make spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God, sacrifices like these. Together, we make sacrifices of of praise and thanksgiving to the God who saved us. Together, we make sacrifices of prayer as we cast our cares upon the one who cares for us. Together, we intercede for others, for other believers around the world, for unbelievers in the world. We bring all sorts of people before the throne of Christ and, and, and plead on their behalf for the mercy and grace of God to be lavished upon them. We make sacrifices of our time and talent and treasure as we joyfully sacrifice anything we need to sacrifice in order to preach the gospel of God in the world. Some of us even make the sacrifice of our earthly lives so that the glory of Jesus Christ can be known in this world and and so that some can be saved. That doesn't happen often in the United States, but all over the world, even in these days. All over the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are paying with their lives for being a priesthood of believers in the world. This is an acceptable offering to God, not because of the death itself, but because people would willingly offer their lives uh, rather than cling to their lives and, and, and so dishonor Christ. In other words, their value of Jesus is so much greater than their value of life that they just give it up. Paul said that if you surrender your body to the flames but you have no love for God, then your surrender actually doesn't mean anything to God. It's nothing. It's not the act of dying itself. It's the act of dying for the love of God and the love of a lost world. 
That can only be motivated by God, beloved. This can only be a work that God is working inside of us. And this is the, the trajectory of the Christian heart. That we will sacrifice anything we have to sacrifice, even our very lives, for the gospel of God in the world and by the gospel, uh, by the power of the gospel at work in our own lives. Beloved, God the Father has laid down the precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ so that whoever believes in him will never be put to shame, but rather will be built up into a spiritual house upon him along with believers from all over this world and throughout time. We will have to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. But despite our sufferings, we who believe in Jesus by the grace of God will be honored by God for the glory of Jesus. In the end, we will be honored. Those aren't my words. Those are coming right out of 1 Peter. Our trust in God will be vindicated by God as he reveals himself to be true, as he reveals his words to be true. Our trust in God will be vindicated by God as he humbles every rebel and silences every slanderous accusation that is leveled against us. And as for those who have actively opposed God and us, as for those who have persistently slandered God and us, the Lord teaches us in verse 8 that they will actually be put to shame before God because they have disobeyed God and stumbled in this life on account of their disobedience. Sometimes pursuing holiness is very hard because those around us don't exactly encourage us. Isn't that right? Sometimes as we're pursuing holiness before the Lord, the people around us shame us. They mock us. They exclude us. In one way, shape, or form, they persecute us, and it can be very hard. But when the fiery trial of false accusations and oppositions and exclusions come our way, Beloved, we just need to learn to see with eternal eyes because it won't always be this way. If our accusers refuse to humble themselves before Jesus returns again, then they will answer to God for their actions and they will receive the unfettered justice of God upon their lives and they will weep and gnash their teeth forever out of regret of how they have disrespected God and disrespected his people. God will honor us, but God will keep shame upon them. We will not gloat over them in that day, and we should not gloat over them in this day. We should not. That is not the Lord's heart. We should weep for and pray for our enemies while, they are, while there is still time for them to repent and be saved. That's what our heart should be. But beloved, in that day when the tables are turned and we are honored and they are put to shame by God himself, they will no longer gloat over us either. They will no longer shame us. They will no longer revile and scoff at us. God will silence them. God will cause them to come and honor us. I take this from a couple uh, texts, but we'll see soon in the series in Revelation. God says to the church that he's going to take a particular group of people in a particular city that were shaming the church. He says, I am going to force them to come and bow at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. That's what he says. He doesn't do this to exalt us in ourselves. He's doing this to vindicate himself. He's doing this to vindicate the gospel. And the reason I'm lingering here right now is because some of you I trust are suffering under the weight of this kind of mocking, of this kind of exclusion, of the kind of pain that comes with pursuing holiness in the world. But beloved, see with eternal eyes. One day God will make all things right. When it comes to the people of God, 
When it comes to those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, by the grace of God in Jesus, God wants us to know something about who we are, and then he wants to know us to know something about what he's called us to do in this world, because these things are incredibly clarifying for us. We actually need to learn to think about everything in this life in light of who we are and in light of what God has called us to do. And so God is clarifying these things for us out of mercy, out of grace. And I pray that we'll listen carefully. It blows my mind how much Peter packed in just uh, chapter 2, verse 9. But I want to walk through that with you now because here God uh, reveals to us some things about our identity that we really need to know. First of all, Peter teaches us that we are a chosen race. Now that word race means a, a people in the sense of a people group. So the most important thing that we need to know about ourselves as Christians is that we are not mainly black or white or yellow or brown or however, however you would describe the various ethnicities of the world. Rather, we are the unified people of God in Christ. This is the most important thing about us. As the people of God in Christ, we are not primarily American or European or Asian or South American or African or, or, or Islanders or whatever else you would say of the hundreds of nations in the world. We are primarily the unified people of God in Christ. Now, of course, we see in Revelation chapters 5 and 7 that the Lord preserves something of our diversity, even in the body of Christ, because it's, it, the diversity is in large part what displays the glory of God. The, the diversity of the kind of birds shows the glory of God. The diversity of, of the beasts of the fields shows the, the, the glory of God. The diversity of all the fish in the seas and in the rivers and in the lakes displays the glory of God, the diversity of trees, this basic idea of a tree, but so much diversity in it. This is in large part the display of the glory of God. So of course, of course, the Lord values and delights to display the diversity of his people, but beloved, our unity is actually the foundational thing. The reason our diversity is glorious is because of our unity in Christ. Our unity in Christ shows that our differences do not divide us, but actually unite us to bring glory to God. Isn't that beautiful? It's just absolutely beautiful. That's what it means to say that we're a chosen race. And now the word chosen. This word chosen means that God has handpicked each and every one of us. This does not simply mean that God looked into the future and foresaw the lives of all those who would choose to believe in the gospel. It means something more specific and direct than that. It means that God chose us and that we did not choose God. It means in the language of chapter 1, verse 3, that God caused us to be born again, and we did not cause ourselves to be born again. This same word is used of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. You can glance there if you want to. Twice it's using. It's using. Twice it's used. And that word simply cannot mean that God foresaw the decision Jesus would make about himself. It has to mean that God the Father appointed God the Son to some specific task. Of course, God the Son willingly and gladly embraced that calling. I am not saying that Jesus has no will of his own. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the will of the Father is what chose him for that particular role. And I'm not saying that the people of God have no will at all either. But I am saying that the will of God is the prevailing will in our lives. I am saying that he chose us in the way that he chose Christ. We did not choose him. 
Jesus himself said this in the Gospel of John. I chose you. You did not choose me. This is true of us, beloved. We are a chosen race. We are a chosen people group set apart for God. That's who we are. This is our identity. And the way we ought to hear this should not strike pride in our hearts. If we become prideful about this, one thing I can guarantee you is that we have not understood it at all. This idea that we're a chosen people ought to make us the most humble people on this planet. We ought to be the most grateful, gracious people on this planet. That's what this truth is, ca- is meant to cause inside of our hearts, humility. So let us be humble. We are a chosen people of God. Second, Peter says that we're a royal priesthood. Now you may remember from the Old Testament that the Lord promised the people of Israel that if they would only obey his commandments and walk in his ways, that he would make of them a priesthood, that he would make of them a holy nation. But although they promised three times, that all, they, they said, all that the Lord has said we will do, they did not walk in the will and ways of God. They regularly, repeatedly broke the commandments of God as we would have done if we were in their place. And because of this, God withdrew the offer to them to be the exclusive priesthood in in the world. But God, because he is rich in mercy, made a way for Jews and Gentiles alike to be forgiven, to be reconciled for him, to him, to come into the inheritance of all of his promises, including the promise to be a priesthood in this world. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, It's not so much that we fulfill the commands of God on our own, but that we embrace this reality that Jesus fulfilled them on our behalf. When we put our faith in Christ, his perfect obedience is transferred on us so that we become an inheritor of all the promises of God along with him. Just a stunning act of grace, isn't it? It's just a stunning exchange. And so now, Jew and Gentile alike, by faith in Christ, are formed into a singular people who function as a kingdom of priests in this world. We function as intercessors in this world. We function as servants of this world. We function as ambassadors of God in this world. This is who we are, beloved. And as I said earlier, many of you, maybe most of you, are not used to thinking of yourself as priests. Maybe you know the teaching about priesthood of believers, but I wonder if you've ever really embraced your identity as a priest of God in the world. You need to meditate on this because our behavior is designed to flow out of our identity. That's how God has wired us. So you need to meditate on this. In God's sight, you are a chosen people. In God's sight, you are a royal priesthood. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is who we are together in the world. Third thing, Peter says that we're a a, a chosen nation or a holy nation. This means that we're a nation set apart for God and for the things of God. We are not primarily citizens of this world. We are primarily citizens of this kingdom, uh, of the kingdom of God, who are given over to the purposes of God in heaven and on earth. This is what our lives are about. We'll gladly accept citizenship in this world, but we do so as, as resident aliens. We are exiles. We are strangers here. We do not belong to this earth. And the reason we're here and hold citizenships in this world is so that we can act as ambassadors to the world. That's what we're doing here. That's what our earthly citizenships are about. 
But when it comes to our sense of identity, we need to learn to stop thinking of ourselves as Americans and start thinking of ourselves as the people of God. That's who we are. Our American citizenship will fade away right along with this great empire. I enjoy living in this land and I'm grateful for it. I mean no disrespect to our country or to anybody who has served it, but it is a temporary nation. The kingdom of God endures forever. The kingdom of God alone endures forever. Beloved, we are a holy nation. We are the people of God. We are a priesthood of believers in this world. And not only that, but a royal, kingly type of priesthood in this world. This is who we are, beloved. And finally, Peter says that we are God's own possession. This is drawing directly on the language of Exodus 19.5. And in 19.5, the words are translated there as that, that we are God's treasured possession, that God's people are God's treasured possession. And I really love that picture. I, I love that vision because it helps us to see something about the heart of God. It helps us to see that we are actually treasured by God. Our salvation was not just a transaction so that God came to own us in some, you know, impersonal way. God has passion for us, beloved. God has affection for us. God loves us. God values us. God treasures us. God is happy to be our father. God is happy that we have become his children in Christ. God is happy to bring us deeper and deeper and deeper into his happiness into the world. This is how God feels for us. Whether you had a good father or a bad father, I think we can all know that deep inside of our hearts, we all want to be wanted by our fathers. We want to be valued by our fathers. We want to be nourished and cared for by our fathers. I had a good one. My biological father truly loved me. He had a lot of affection for me. Just at a personality level, we really clicked. But the gift that God gave to me in him was that it's, it's, it's an easy leap for me to understand that God has affection for me because I've experienced that before. Now I, I just understand that the Father, the Heavenly Father's affection for me is infinite, whereas my earthly father's was very limited. Maybe you didn't have such a good father, but you know inside your heart that you've always wanted to be wanted. You've always wanted to have a father who has affection for you. Well, guess what? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you do. And you have a father who cannot die, who will not forsake you, and who cannot fail you. He sees you as his treasured possession. He loves you. This is so crucial. I am not just trying to psychologically massage your feelings. I'm trying to help you understand who you are because our behavior flows out of that. Some of you are probably wondering right around now, Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I thought this was a message on evangelism. Well, guess what? It is a message on evangelism. Evangelism is the overflow of our identity in Christ in the world. And if we don't pause and really take in and take to heart and understand our identity, we will never proclaim the excellencies of God in the world in the way that he intends us to do that. This is evangelism training. Get to know who you are in Christ. Your identity in Christ is everything when it comes to our mission in the world. It is amazing to me that Peter, led as he was by the Holy Spirit, was able to pack so much into one verse, chapter 2, verse 9. But boy, did he ever. And I'm so grateful that he did. 
And because of what I just said about the connection between our identity and our mission, I want to encourage you to really reflect on these things. Please don't pass quickly by verse 9. Please don't. Please, after the sermon, take time with your families to just talk about these things. Or if you're alone, just take time to think about these things. Maybe journal about these things. Think long and hard about who you are in Christ. It means so much. And you'll understand more and more what I mean as you meditate more and more on who you are. On the basis of who we are then, Peter moves on to tell us what God has called us to do in the world. And the way he puts it is that God has called us as his holy priesthood in this world, his holy nation, his treasured possession. He has called us to do a simple thing. And that is to proclaim the excellencies of God in Christ in this world. The one who took us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Our whole lives now are simply about proclaiming the excellencies of God in Christ. We're going to put this on the bottom of the screen for you. But if you need to pause the video and write this down, please do. Please write this down. God has created us to spend our lives proclaiming the excellencies of God in Christ. That's our mission in the world. God has created us to spend our lives proclaiming the excellencies of God in Christ. This is our privilege. This is our joy. This is our calling in this world from God. That said, our proclamation has to come about in a particular way. I've been saying it all along. From the beginning of the sermon, I've been saying it, but I want to say it again. First, we taste the goodness of the Lord, and then we declare the goodness of the Lord to other people. First, we taste, then we testify. First, we become the people of God by the astounding grace of God, and then we invite other people into the family of God where they can experience this grace with us. First, We receive mercy upon mercy from God and then we go out into the world and invite others into that waterfall of mercy with us. First, we experience the manifold excellencies of God in our lives, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his self-control, his joy, his love, his peace, his so many things. We experience his excellencies in our lives and then we go out into the world and we proclaim them to others. This is what evangelism is about. Beloved, the best kind of evangelism training you could ever get is to simply experience the grace of God in Christ. As you sit under the waterfall of his grace and just take him in, experience him, become transformed by him, you are being trained to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to other people. You see, it's very simple. Let me, let me just summarize it like this. First we taste, then we testify. First we receive, then we recite. First we experience, then we explain. First we come into the joy of the Lord, then we commend the joy of the Lord to others. There's evangelism in a nutshell. Beloved, this is why Pastor Kevin and I have been saying now for two weeks to you that both Evangelism and mercy ministry begin and end at the cross. First we taste, then we testify. That's evangelism. First we taste, then we touch. That's mercy ministry. Both things are an overflow. Both things are a proclamation and a demonstration of the love of God in Christ. But first we come into the grace and then we proclaim the grace. Life in Christ is really that simple. The best way you can train yourself for evangelism is to experience the grace of God in Christ. 
He will then mold your heart so that your heart becomes like his heart and you will desire to seek, the sa- seek and save the lost along with him. And when you go to seek and save the lost, all you have to do is say what you have seen. Listen, I've been to many evangelism trainings and I value every one of them. I've learned from every single one of them. To this very day, I'm actively involved in a particular training that I'll talk about here in a little bit. And I appreciate all of it. But at the end of the day, the most simple thing that I could possibly say about evangelism is first taste and then testify. First experience and then proclaim. This is the way I think that the Lord wants us to fulfill our mission in the world. Since this is who we are in Christ and what God has called us to do in Christ, Peter comes back to the subject of holiness in verses 11 and 12, and he writes this. Beloved, really he's saying on the basis of everything I've just said to you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in the world to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. By the grace of God in Christ, beloved, we no longer belong to the world, and so we should no longer indulge ourselves in the world. After all, as Peter says later in his letter, what did we ever get out of all that anyway? What did it ever really do for us? Did it ever truly satisfy those of you who have given yourselves to pornography either for a short time or, or maybe you've struggled with it for a long time, has it ever really satisfied you? Have you ever come to the end of it? Has it not actually just gone the other way where you become less and less and less and less satisfied? Has that not happened to you? Well, that is the ways of the world. That is what the things of the world are going to produce in our souls. So just walk away from them. Abstain from the passions of the flesh because of the grace of God that's at work in you and by the grace of God that is at work in you. Because of his grace and by his grace, just reject those things that wage war against our soul and dilute our joy in Jesus. Dilute our boldness to share the gospel. Dilute our desire to share the gospel. Dilute our desire to love other people and give ourselves for them, whether in testifying or in touching, whether in evangelism or in mercy ministry. Stay away from the things that wage war against who we are and what we're called to do, beloved. This is the counsel of our older brother in Christ, and I pray with all my heart that we'll heed it. Peter then specifically tells us to watch our behavior before unbelievers so that when we do testify that our message has credibility. And I I really don't think that he's telling us to put on a show. I mean, I think it's obvious that he's not advising us to be hypocrites. But I do want to take a minute to explicitly point that out to be clear about what he's saying. He is not telling us to be hypocrites, but he is certainly calling us to live in such a way that we can preach the gospel with our lips without opposing the message with our lives. He wants us to be able to preach the gospel with our lips without diluting the message of the gospel through our behavior and and what people know that we're engaged in or, or what they end up finding out that we're engaged in. It is not that Peter wants us to be hypocrites, but it is that Peter, and I think more so even the Lord, wants the world to hear about the grace of God from people who are actively experiencing the grace of God. And if you'll think about that, that implies that we are still struggling with sin and receiving God's grace into our lives because of our sin. 
That is not a, a dilution of the gospel. That is not a compromise of the gospel. What compromises the gospel is when we're living a hidden life over here and proclaiming the gospel over here. These two things just don't go together. And these behaviors over here that we might think are secret are actually diluting our passion and power and credibility when we're tasting and testifying and touching with regard to the gospel in the world. You might think this stuff over here doesn't really matter or that it doesn't have an effect. It definitely has an effect. And one way you'll come to know that is if you'll finally walk away from those things by the power of God and be really focused on the things of God. If you'll grow in holiness, you'll begin to see the, have the intensity of your joy and your passion and your power to taste and testify and touch just increases and increases and increases. Beloved, this is what Peter wants for us. This is what he wants. But again, this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin and that we shouldn't talk about it. I actually think our ongoing struggle with sin and our ongoing receipt of grace with regard to our sin is one of the most powerful things we have with regard to evangelism. Every Christian should be an expert testifier to the truth of 1 John 1, 9 through 10. You know these verses well, but let me just read them for you. John says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That ought to be something that we experience over and over and over and over again, and then that we explain to other people. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And we ought to be able to say to unbelievers that, listen, we're not asking you to do anything we don't do. Every day we're acknowledging our sin before the Lord, and we're receiving the transforming grace of the Lord. We just want you to come into that joy with us. So just confess your sins. Come under the waterfall of grace and mercy by simply agreeing with God that you have sinned. Beloved, that is not hypocrisy. It's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about us living a double life. And he's saying, stop that. Put your eyes on Jesus Christ and come out of the world. As I said a couple weeks ago in one of my sermons, come out of the trap. Jesus Christ has given you power to come out of the trap. So make a choice. Come out of the trap. Do whatever you have to do. Do whatever you have to do. But by his power, come out of that trap. Now, Peter is intermingling the topics of holiness and mission. Because when we live as the people of God, by the power and grace of God, it's then that our souls are filled with love and passion and power to taste and testify and touch. That's what this is about. The more we grow in holiness, the more we grow in passion for these things, beloved. The more we grow in holiness, the more we're going to want to proclaim the excellencies of God in the world. The more we grow in holiness, the more we're going to be willing to, to have our, our schedules interrupted so that we'll stop and help the person by the side of the road that's hurting and that nobody else seems to care about. The more that we grow in holiness, the more that God's passions will become our passions, beloved. And this is what the Lord wants for us. This is what Peter is trying to commend to us. And so I plead with you this morning to hear the word of God. I plead with you to let the word of God expose your heart and open it up a little bit that he might change you and heal you and bring you more fully into the joy that he's prepared for his people. Come into the joy of knowing what it's like to experience the excellencies of God and then to proclaim them to the world. Come into the joy of what it's like to taste and then testify, to taste and then touch in that order. Oh Lord, oh beloved, the Lord has so many great things for us. If we'll simply listen to his word, and follow in his ways by the power of his hand.
As I said earlier in the message, God has created us to spend our lives proclaiming the excellencies of God in Christ. This is our mission in this world. This is why we're here. So let us be about this mission. Yes, even in this very strange season of life. Now with that, let me close the message out by just commending a couple of resources to you. And then I want to tell you a quick story about what it might look like to proclaim the excellencies of God even in this season of life. First, over the last several weeks, I've created a four-part video series that we posted on our YouTube channel. It's called Making Disciples in the Midst of the Crisis. In part one, I lay down some foundational principles, and then in parts two through four, I walk you through what it might look like to make disciples even now with regard to worship, community, and mission. And one of my major premises in this series is that if we will uh, devote ourselves um, to making disciples in this season of life, then we'll make disciples in any season of life. If we'll do it when it's hard, then we're much more likely to do it when it's easy. And so I really want to encourage you to go and watch those videos. The, the production quality is not the greatest. I, my, my presentations are not the greatest. I wasn't trying to be polished and perfect. I was just trying to share my heart with you. And I want to just ask you to let me, as your brother in Christ, come and, and sharpen your sword a little bit with regard to making disciples. Take this time that you have in the midst of this crisis to resolve more deeply that you will become a disciple maker and not just a disciple of Christ. Resolve in these days that you will taste and see the goodness of the Lord and then devote yourself to helping other people see what you have seen. Second, in recent days at Glory of Christ, we have been commending a particular approach to explaining the gospel to unbelievers. It's called the three circles. And while there are many ways to share the gospel, and while I would encourage you to learn as many different ways as you can, uh, a number of us at GCF have really uh, taken to this way because it's a very simple thing to understand. It's a very simple thing to explain to even an unbeliever. It's a very simple thing to remember in your mind. It's very flexible. It can be combined with other approaches to evangelism. It can easily be taught to children and to new believers and uh, to older believers. There's just so many things that commend it, and so I want to commend it to you. On our Right Now Media page, we have placed six training videos that were developed by the men who first came up with this three circles approach to evangelism. In his city in Florida, they were looking for ways to connect with unbelievers there, and, and their answer to that was, was this three circles method. So there are things about his videos that I don't prefer. There are things that I do prefer. But I want to commend you to go and, and watch those videos. Each of them is right around 15 minutes. I, I think I said already there are six of them, so you don't have to watch them all at once, but just maybe one at a time, watch them through. And, and just don't approach it as a critic who's there to you know, maybe get a little ruffled by all the things you don't like. Just go there as a humble, teachable learner who wants to sharpen your sword so that you can be a, a better proclaimer of the excellencies of God in Christ. I have grown so much from this brother's teaching. He has led many hundreds, probably thousands of people to Christ throughout his life. It's not something he boasts in, but it's just a fact. So why not let this expert soul winner, if you will, just teach us a little bit and sharpen our sword. So please, you can find those videos on uh, our Right Now Media page. We'll put links to both of these resources in the description of this sermon video here so that you can get to them quickly. But please take the time to equip yourselves to be better proclaimers of the excellencies of God in the world. 
And with that, I want to just close with a brief story about what it might look like to do that in a, in a very simple way. So a few weeks ago, before the stay-at-home order was issued, but, but, but after the schools were closed down, Kim, like everybody else in the school systems, was forced to come and, and work at home. After she had been in that situation for a few days, maybe a week or so, she began to pray about how God might, might use her in this particular season of life. And this was before I even began to raise this subject with her, just something that was on her own heart. And so she remembered that we have a, a list of, of many of the names and phone numbers of our neighbors in the area. And especially, especially since they're older than us, Kim thought it would be good to just call and ask how they're doing and see if there's anything that we could do to help them. We're relatively younger. We're able to still go out. And she just offered, you know, if you need us to go to the store for you or, or anything, we'll do whatever we can do. Well, one person was particularly touched by this, and she wrote us a note that was very kind. She expressed her gratefulness for what Kim had done. And then she said that when this whole thing is over, we have to have another neighborhood party and just get everybody together. Now, you've got to understand, in our neighborhood, these people just don't get together. They, they live near each other, but they keep their distance from each other. When we first moved into the area, we hosted a, a party for the neighborhood, and unfortunately, the weather was really bad. But still, four or five of the neighbors came over, and they told us they had not gotten together in 15 or 20 years or something like that. So they know each other. They just don't have much to do with each other. So that this woman, who's well-respected in the neighborhood, would say, basically, when this all lifts, we're all going to get together, is a big thing. And it just amazes me to think about this wide-open door that, that is there for us to gather with people, to maybe testify to them about how God was gracious to us in the midst of the crisis, and maybe... Look, they all know that I'm a pastor. Word spreads quickly in a little neighborhood like ours. They all know that I'm a pastor. Maybe I could say, hey, let me just pray for us and give thanks to God. Who's going to object to that, right? So in the midst of us testifying, maybe in that gathering to what God has done for us in this time of crisis, and in the midst of me praying, the, the gospel will certainly be shared and we'll certainly have follow-up conversations with others. And oh, what a grace that is, beloved. What a, a tremendous grace that is. It's a, a, a simple opportunity that came as the overflow of an act of mercy from the heart of a woman who's been, been touched by Jesus and now wants to touch with the love of Jesus. And maybe you could proclaim the love of God in a simple way like that. So with that in mind, let me just pray for us now and we'll close for the day. Father, thank you so much for this word. And I pray that you would now work it into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for what you will do in us and through us, I give you my thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and lift up his countenance over you and give you peace and hope and eternal joy, both now and forevermore, through Jesus Christ and for the glory of his name. In his name, I bless you all. And now I encourage you to sing a song together, to pray together, and to discuss the sermon together. And I pray that God will bless you as you do. God be with you all.